0: The time is now. Volume 7, episode 127, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment at Cozen O'Connor. Well, as you all remember, my very last episode just last week talked about this breaking NLRB decision, Inri McLaren-Macomb that was issued on Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, which seemingly invalidated confidentiality and non-disparagement clauses in severance agreements. But beyond the analysis that I did in the last episode and beyond the analysis that we've all seen and heard from a lot of other legal analysts over the past couple of weeks, I thought it would be great to hear directly from the board on some of the open questions and some of the issues that employers and employees alike are grappling with since the McLaren decision. General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo at the NLRB, as she has been in the past, was gracious enough to join me for the podcast today to openly answer a whole host of questions and address some of these issues that we're all having with the McLaren decision. General Counsel Abruzzo, I really appreciate you coming back on the podcast. Thank you so much. Of course, it's good to be here. Uh, As you would imagine, there is a lot of trepidation and a lot of questions about the board's February 21st McLaren-Macomb decision, Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, This is a good opportunity, I think, to note again that the decision, and indeed the NLRA, applies to employees in both the union and the non-union setting, Do you find that businesses or even the general public still think of these rules and decisions as applying solely to a unionized workforce?
1: Yes, unfortunately, Um, as you know, you know, the act protects the rights of workers to self-organize, to join, support or assist a union, to bargain collectively through representatives of their free choosing. And to engage collectively for mutual aid or protection, which is typically referred to as protected concerted activity, not union activity. And, and also the act protects the right to refrain from engaging in those activities. So. Yeah, unfortunately, we do see inadvertent violations of the act because employers and intentional violations, but uh, but the inadvertent ones are often because employers do not believe that the act applies to them or that the agency has jurisdiction over them because they don't have a represented workforce. And in fact, uh, the chairman and I just spoke at a SHRM conference, the society of uh, human resource managers on that very issue. Uh, and we are uh, engaging with as many you know, small businesses, large businesses and everything in between about you know understanding rights uh, workers rights under the statute and obligations of employers and unions under the statute so yes we certainly have jurisdiction over most private sector employers regardless of whether a union is present or not at the workplace because as I said workers have the right to act together to improve their wages and working conditions and and can't be retaliated against for doing so.
0: And so staying on the coverage point, uh, I guess the flip side of that, it's important to note the NLRA does not generally apply to supervisory employees. Um, and therefore, this McLaren decision on severance agreement clauses would not necessarily apply to agreements between employers and their supervisory employees. Has there been a rule of thumb for the board to determine who is truly a supervisory employee under the NLRA? Yes.
1: But before I get to that, I just want to I just want to get to the point you made where you said that the NLRA does not generally apply to supervisory employees, because I think that this is something that everyone should understand. So while supervisors are generally not protected uh, by, you know, under the act, there is a case Parker Rob Chevrolet, which says the act does protect a supervisor who is retaliated against such as being fired, because they are refusing to act on their employer's behalf in committing an unfair labor practice against employees. So in other words, the the supervisor is refusing to violate the NLRA per their employer's directives. So I could envision a potential hypothetical situation where I'm making up a hypothetical situation where an employer could proffer a severance agreement to a supervisor under that circumstance, you know, someone who's unlawfully fired for refusing to violate the act, uh, refusing to interrogate employees, for example, on their employer's behalf, and that potentially could be unlawful. So um, it's just to say there could be situations where um, supervisors would be protected.
0: Well, and to be Ah. sort of, yeah, no, thank you for that. And to, and I guess to be specific on that, um, it sounds like what you're saying is that certainly if a supervisory employee is acting on behalf of a non supervisory employee uh, in not wanting uh, the NLRA to be violated, that might be a retaliation situation that the board might find to be a violation. For purposes of the McLaren issue, if a, uh, are you saying that you could envision a situation where an employer proffering a severance agreement to a supervisory employee that that in and of itself could also be a violation, even if that individual is a supervisor? What
1: so what I'm saying is is and typically, as I said, the 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 McLaren Macomb case would not. Would not apply to supervisory, you know, proffering severance agreements to supervisory uh, individuals because the act doesn't typically cover supervisory individuals. However, as I, you know, that hypothetical I gave, there there could be certain circumstances wherein, you know, proffering a, a severance agreement to a, a supervisory imp, uh, uh, individual. Could be unlawful, you know, depending upon what the super, what the severance agreement said, of course, uh, and all, all the other underlying facts. Um, so, just to say, in general, I would agree with the premise that you know, proffering a, 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 a severance agreement to a supervisor would typically not fall under our purview, you know, the NLRA's purview. But 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 there could be circumstances where it would. So j- j- just for folks to be. Just a little cautious there, and um, but but as to your second question, where you know is there a rule of thumb? I mean, as you, in terms of what is the definition of a supervisor? And so you know, this the statutory definition is a is of a supervisor is an individual having authority in the interest of the employer to hire, transfer, suspend, layoff, recall, promote, discharge, assign, reward, or discipline other employees or to responsibly direct them or adjust their grievances or effectively recommend such action uh, if they're doing so um, using independent judgment and it's not merely routine or clerical in nature. So that's a very long-winded, but that that is basically the definition of of a supervisor. Now the Supreme Court in the Kentucky River case specifically advised that the degree of discretion, the degree of discretion involved by the supervisor and not the kind of discretion is what determines the existence of whether that supervisor actually is using independent judgment or not. And and then after that, the board issued a decision in, in a case called Oakwood that refined the test a bit for supervisory status and said, assign, means the act of designating an employee to a place you know a department for example or appointing them to a time like a like a shift or giving them significant overall duties you know uh and that so that's a sign and then responsibly to direct means authority to direct employees using independent judgment, and having the authority to take corrective action if necessary against those employees. And typically, the supervisor would be held accountable for the performance of the employee in performing the tasks. And there could be adverse consequences if that person fails to direct employees properly. So so that's what responsibly to direct means. And then, then they also kind of Kind of uh, defined or put a finer point to independent judgment, and specifically noted it's not not the routine. It's free from control by others. It's not dictated by you know detailed um, instructions that are in company handbooks or policies or rules. Um, it's not where the individual is just doing. What a higher authority has instructed them to do, verbally or in writing. Uh, it's not um, just applying the provisions of a collective bargaining agreement. You know, so it would it would certainly so that so those were the three kind of factors in that Oakwood case that kind of clarified um, what who a supervisor really is versus an employee.
0: That's very helpful. Certainly, a, a factual based. Analysis, but uh, at least you know it's it's helpful to understand the standards being used uh, at the moment by the board. Uh, yeah. Few few important aspects to the McLaren decision that I just want to uh, go through with you because again I know a lot of <clears throat> excuse me a lot of employers out there uh, and even a lot of employees out there uh, are asking questions about the scope of this decision. Uh, the board expressly overruled precedent that seemed to look more at the context in which severance agreement terms were being offered. Uh, The McLaren decision seems to instead rule that uh, not only were the broad confidentiality and non-disparagement clauses a violation of the NLRA, but merely offering such terms would likely constitute an unfair labor practice. Why should context not matter uh, if, if we're saying it doesn't?
1: So, right. So the board said it doesn't matter and it doesn't. Right. Context doesn't matter when you're analyzing whether a provision is facially lawful or not. And in this case, we had two facially unlawful provisions, right? We had the non-disparagement and the confidentiality. Those provisions independently violate 8A1. They interfere with the exercise of Section 7 rights. And, and in fact, in, uh, the board in one of their footnotes, I think it was footnote 47, specifically said that an employer can't have any legitimate interest in maintaining a facially unlawful provision in a severance agreement, much less an interest that somehow outweighs the section seven rights of employees. So so we're talking about facially unlawful provisions and that's why context doesn't matter. And, and, and Baylor and IGT, which were overruled by McLaren McComb. I mean, I think the board got it right. Those, the, the, it, those cases were wrongly premised on the notion that you needed a showing of animus Whether through unlawful discharges or other unlawful discrimination in order to find a violation as to the severance agreement. But as the board noted, proffering the settlement, the severance agreement with unlawful terms, facially unlawful terms, is coercive in and of itself because it conditions, you know, it again, it interferes with the exercise of Section 7 rights. It conditions the receipt of benefits, typically monetary, on a waiver of exercising Section 7 rights vis-a-vis these overbroad non-disparagement and confidentiality provisions. And so while the presence of additional violations would certainly enhance the coercive potential of a severance agreement, the absence of additional um, adverse conduct um, can't eliminate the potential chilling effect of an unlawful severance agreement, a, a severance agreement whose terms themselves are unlawful. So, I mean, you know, the board to me got it right. Proffering alone is violative. It has a reasonable tendency to interfere with or restrain or coerce the exercise of section seven rights by not only the the, the separating employee, um, but also the co-workers who remain employed at the workplace because that separating employee in this particular case, for example, would not be able to assist them in any meaningful way.
0: So does that mean, again, staying with the hypothetical, that we can envision a situation where the board might find, notwithstanding uh, McLaren, that a confidentiality or non-disparagement clause is not facially violative, therefore we would then look to context?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I I certainly think, yeah, I, I, you know, there, there's, I'm, there's plenty of severance agreements out there now that are not facially violative. So and I do think that that's an important you know I know that there's been a lot of talk about this case and I do think it's an important point to note that that the board did not ban the proffering of severance agreements uh, in all circumstances.
0: And um, yeah, I mean, and in the conversations about that very issue, the question out there is, you know, is it sufficient to put disclaimers that we're, you know, we're going to have a confidentiality or non-disparagement clause, but we will specifically say in those provisions, for example, um, none of this is intended to restrict an employee's ability to X, Y, or Z, or none of this is intended to violate an employee's rights under the NLRA, something along those lines.
1: Yeah, I think it's got so look, this is what I would say. There there's plenty of lawful severance agreements that can continue to be utilized. They cannot have overly broad provisions in them that detrimentally detrimentally affect the rights of employees to engage with one another to improve their lot as employees or to engage with others, third parties or engage, you know, in channels outside of the immediate employee employer relationship such as access to us, the agency, access to their own union, access to the courts, access to the media uh, or, you know, the public writ large. Um, But, you know, there have been board decisions out there and I think uh, in McLaren-McComb the board pointed pointed them out where where there were approved severance agreements where the releases you know, there was one case where the releases waived only the the signing employee employee's right to pursue employment claims that arose as of the date of the signing of the agreement, right? And that was, um, I think, Hughes Christensen and and yeah. First National Supermarkets, yes. and and then in in Phillips Pipeline, the Severance Agreement was found lawful after examining that the facial language, and and after doing so. Um, there was a determination that it didn't unlawfully waive employees' rights to access to the board in that particular case. So certainly, um, and and you're right, I mean, after you look at the provisions themselves to determine whether or not they're facially lawful or not, or whether or not they somehow interfere with the exercise of Section 7 rights, you know, then, of course, you would look beyond that and to see what else is going on, uh, you know, in, in, at that particular time, and you know that's where context would matter.
0: I have a couple of more questions for you. I really appreciate your time, General Counsel. As always, um, one of the other big issues that employers are, are asking right now uh, is the retroactivity question. Um, is it fair to say, or is it not fair to say, that the decision does not retroactively invalidate agreements entered into prior to February twenty first, twenty twenty three? but that the board may find going forward a violation if an employer attempts to enforce a previously entered into agreement. Where are we on the retroactivity question?
1: Yeah, so I don't believe I'd go so far to say that the decision does not retroactively invalidate agreements entered into before it's issued. I mean, the board did not specifically say that. Normally it would, that, uh, you know, this is a prospective application applies. And of course, you know, they go through uh, an examination of whether or not it needs to be prospective because of um, some sort of manifest injustice that warrants a forward-looking application. And they didn't do that in this situation. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on it being, you know, prospective application only. And I would note that we we have settled on the GC side, uh, you know, prior to McLaren-McComb even issuing um, in settlement voluntary settlement agreements, we have settled cases involving severance agreements which had overly broad terms um, that chilled the exercise of Section 7 rights. Um, and the way we we settled it, but was by requiring the employer to notify its former employees that the provisions in those settlements uh, severance agreements no longer apply. And that was the settlement that the employer agreed to do and did do.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, And you mentioned a moment ago, uh, you referred to former employees, and I know the decision uh, addressed this issue of uh, whether or not the NLRA applies technically to former employees. There is this connection when we're talking about protected concerted activity between the the former employee and the ability to still speak with or engage in protected activity with current employees. Um, Is it the board's position that former employees who are the ones technically uh, entering into these severance agreements, that even though they are former employees, this is still something within the jurisdiction of the board?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think the board specifically confirmed that former employees are entitled to the same protections under the act. I mean, it said section seven is not limited to discussions with coworkers. Uh, you know, it doesn't depend on the existence of empl- an employment relationship between the employee and the employer. The boards repeatedly affirm that rights extend to to former employee employees, and I think I think that was in footnote twenty five of the um, of the McLaren uh, mccomb decision. They they you know specifically reiterated that. Of course, we know that under two three of the Act, the term employee includes any employee and is you know, not limited to employees of any particular employer. So certainly uh, former employees are definitely included and have the same rights as current employees.
0: And I know you will not be surprised uh, to hear that employers are sort of uh, suggesting that this decision went too far into a private contract situation, that these are negotiated agreements, often with the benefit of counsel in exchange for significant monetary and other benefits being provided uh, to the departed employee in exchange for some of these provisions. To, To the extent you can answer this question, I'd love your thoughts on whether there is a concern that this decision will lead to employers becoming disincentivized from offering benefits to laid off employees if they feel they're not getting enough back in exchange for the benefits they are giving when, when they're used to giving things like confidentiality provisions, non-disparagement, things like that. Is is there a concern about disincentivizing employees from getting benefits?
1: I I am not overly concerned about that. And and I would say, you know, just I understand the position, but I think the board was right to note that the not only the future rights of employees, but it's also the rights of the public. You know, who, with whom we represent and serve, we don't serve any particular private individual or private entity. We are here serving the public writ large. And so we are not going to allow the public's rights to be traded away in a manner that requires, frankly, for them to not be able to engage in, in, in coming to us in the future, filing Charges with us in the future, engaging in protected concerted activities in the future. So, I mean, I think that it 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 underscores, you know, the board's decision underscores that we are acting in a public capacity to protect public rights, and that effectuates the public policy uh, that Congress has asked us to to effectuate. So, um, and frankly, again, I go back to what we said a minute ago, which is there are plenty of severance agreements out there. I think that pass muster and presumably will be, it will continue to be utilized. And I think if, as long as employers, you know, narrowly tailor them to, you know, what they are trying to get from what they are, you know, in, in uh, as a quid pro quo for what they are giving, um, as long as it's not interfering with the exercise of section seven rights, you know, I think they will likely, I presume they will continue to proffer them.
0: My final question, um, to the extent, again, you can answer this, obviously, McLaren uh, was really focusing on confidentiality and non disparagement clauses within the general principles that uh, it was announcing. Are there other provisions typically contained in severance related agreements uh, that might be viewed as problematic and perhaps you'd like to see addressed in the appropriate case?
1: I mean, certainly, you know, confidentiality, non-disclosure, non-disparagement provisions are are key ones, but but I do think there are other provisions that we've seen in severance agreements that uh, might interfere with employees' exercise of section seven rights um, could include, for example, non-compete clauses, uh, no solicitation clauses, you know, no poaching clauses, you um, Broad liability releases and and covenants not to sue that may go beyond the employer, that may go beyond employment matters um, as of the effective date of the agreement. there's some sometimes there's like cooperation clauses where it requires the employer and the employee to cooperate in in any investigations or proceedings involving the employee employer, which I think could be problematic. Um, so I would say those are that, that's what I could come off come up with off the top of my head. I will also just mention um, uh, for your for your, your listeners. Um, there are a number of questions and the, you know we're just scratching the surface here and and I spoke last week and um, at, at an ABA conference and a number of people came up to me afterwards about asking whether or not there was going to be some guidance put out with regard to um, this McLaren-McComb decision and because there are so many questions around it and maybe some misimpressions about what the case actually said and so Um, I do plan on getting guidance out to the public um, as soon as possible so that maybe it'll alleviate some concerns and and stress.
0: No, that's uh, that's really great to hear. Um, And uh, hopefully you'll be able to uh, get out into the circuit again, maybe even this podcast to talk a little bit about that guidance when it comes out. Um, NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo, you are always so gracious to join me on this podcast to speak about these really important issues. Uh, thank you so much for doing it again today. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Appreciate
0: it. That was extremely informative. I really look forward to this guidance that General Counsel Abruzzo has stated uh, will be forthcoming. Uh, Hopefully that will answer some additional questions. I know there's a lot out there, but hopefully this podcast episode also answered some questions and gave you a little bit more insight on how General Counsel Abruzzo and how the board views the issues that were raised in the February 21st McLaren decision. As always, I can't thank you enough for listening to the podcast, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.